We're talking about the blessing of Abraham, and we've been spending the year with that, actually, and just beginning to discover, just so I can recap a little, all the reasons why trying to tap into the blessing of Abraham for us as humans is quite challenging because it seems so extreme. You know, it seems you're blessed going in, blessed going out, blessed in your body, blessed in your bank account. Your enemies will come at you one way, flee from you seven ways. There's just going to be so many great things going on in your life, you won't be able to stand it. And it's go, yeah, sure it is. Because we remember what our lives are like. We remember the exp- some of the experiences that we've had to go through. And if that were true, then how come, how come, how come, how come? And so we've sort of crossed, and then we crossed over September, which was kind of my, okay, we're done trying to talk about all the reasons we're not going to see the blessing of God in our lives because our souls are preventing that. And we're stepping into the actual, how do we get the blessing of God to operate for us? How, how do we get this supernatural flow? And uh, we're sort of focusing ourselves right now on kind of another unfortunate reality is that you cannot get the blessing of God. That is not available. Matter of fact, God has insisted that you absolutely cannot have it unless you become a covenant person. This is why. Because the blessing of God, the blessing of Abraham is not available just because somebody wants it. Uh, It's available as an outflow of the covenant. And where we are very challenged is to try and understand what does it actually mean to be in covenant with God. And we're going to try and discover some of that this evening. And we're going to continue now probably until the very last service of the year when we can actually get the blessing of God. Because getting the blessing of Abraham is not hard. Matter of fact, Abraham wasn't even trying to get it. What he was trying to get was God. When he got God, the side action of going on vacation with God is that you get all of these other things. As a matter of fact, the blessing of Abraham was not explained to Abraham when he got the blessing of Abraham. He just, God just said, I am your shield and your exceeding great reward. I'm not sure that's enough. We can find all of the blessing of Abraham, all the itemized blessings in I am your shield and your, and your exceeding great reward. Right but the stuff wasn't laid out for Abraham. That didn't come till Moses when it was actually laid out. These are what God is prepared to do for each one of us. But we can go back to Abraham's life and we can see the blessing of Abraham. You know, that's how it got its name. We can see it operating in his life when he became this apparently supernatural person operating in the earth uh, so that people knew God was with you. There is no doubt about the fact that God is with you. And so we can take a look and see that when the covenant, as you remember, it was first a covenant that God made with Abraham, uh, with uh, Adam. And then we see the same thing happen after the flood. All uh, Adam's, uh, Noah's family gets off the ark. And the very first thing that that God does with them is cuts a covenant with them. Uh, you know, the slicing of the, the animals and that kind of thing that they did there. And then when we see Abraham come on the scene, we see exactly the same thing again. In, in Genesis chapter 15, it talks to us about, you know, God showing up in, for, in, in Abraham's life and I am your, your shield and your exceeding great reward. That is, I will protect you and I will provide for you. Uh, and then right after that, if we go, which we'll study a bit of it on Sunday, is an understanding that then God, Abraham comes to God and says, well, yeah, but how am I going to know? How do I know you're really going to do this? Words is not enough. 
That's where we run into trouble even in the New Testament is that we get the words, the blessing of Abraham, blessing, everybody's heard about that stuff. But the, how do I know? That was Abraham's, ask, that was his question too. How do I know that I am going to inherit this thing that, I'm gonna, that you're telling me that I'm gonna inherit? As soon as Abraham did that, God goes, okay, let me do this. Go grab me a couple heifers, right? And so Abraham goes and gathers a couple of heifers, cows, and t- turtle doves and all this kind of stuff, and zippity doo dah chainsawed the things in half, laid them on the ground, and then the, remember the, fi- the furnace and the fire pot go back and forth inside of that, and Abraham knew, we wouldn't know that. We would think that Pastor Ian's gone nuts if he you know, brought a couple of heifers in here and split them in half, but that's not what Abraham knew. Abraham was familiar, that's the, that style of uh, culture, if you will, was, the, was what was necessary. So covenant was a way of life back then. You didn't survive because you were awesome and you had a lawyer and a police force and a couple army people. that didn't have any of that stuff. The only way you survived was through covenant relationships. And so Abraham knew exactly what God was doing. And when he entered into that, all of a sudden you see all of this amazing stuff going on in Abraham's life as an extension of that. And that's where the problem comes in. So turn with me over to Ephesians chapter five. (coughs) In the New Testament, um, how many of you, how many of you have heard the term the bride of Christ? Anybody ever heard that term before? The bride of Christ, that term is not actually a scriptural term. There is no scripture in the Bible that says you are the bride of Christ, BTW. You probably didn't realize that, but, but it does uh, reference it in a number of different places. And that's where we kind of get the terminology from. Uh, really, the, it, we, and it kind of got lost in the fact that I'm the bride of Christ. And so, yeah, whatever that means. But we all know that, but not really familiar with what that would mean when we say that. And so what I'm going to draw your attention to tonight, and maybe a bit on Sunday as well, is that uh, the, term, the metaphor that you are the bride of Christ is referencing a covenant. Because most of our understanding uh, of what a covenant is, if you have a covenant or if you are in covenant with somebody, chances are that person is your spouse because the only place that we ever use that word or see that word in our culture would be in a marriage ceremony where people, says we are, people would say, I'm entering a covenant with this person. Right. Uh, and so we kind of see this in, the, in some of the references I'm gonna make to you now are really, they're, they're where we get the concept of the bride of Christ anyways. And so um, read with me in verse two. And, it'll be, and again, you're gonna be familiar with this because if you've been to a wedding, especially a Christian wedding, then somewhere in the wedding ceremony, this is referenced, even if it's only in the MC telling jokes about what this says. Uh, usually you're gonna find this passage of scripture somewhere uh, in a wedding ceremony. But what I wanna draw your attention to is that, well, let's read it, and then I'll make a couple comments on it. Wives, submit to your husbands as unto the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as, uh, that's pretty popular right there nowadays, um, as also Christ is the head of the church. And he is the savior of the body. Therefore, just as the Christ, as just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Why? Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church. We don't do that very well either. And gave himself for her that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of the water by the word. That he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. 
So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is the great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, each one of you in particular so love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. <clears throat> and so, um, but I, I want to draw your attention to what Paul is saying here. First of all, it would seem like he's talking to husbands and wives. And whenever we hear this story, if you happen to be either one of those, you know this is what's going on in this parable. He's giving a marriage seminar to husbands and wives to teach them how to have good relationships. But that's not what he's doing. If you read this carefully, you'll discover he's actually talking about the relationship that exists between a husband and a wife as a metaphor, as a parable, as a story to help those people understand this is the relationship in the New Testament that you have with God. And now people understand, like I understand, I'm married to this wonderful woman here. I understand after being married for, for, for three or four years now, how that is going to go right? I, I, we live together and we, we, we serve together and we work together. And so we've got all of these experiences of what that's like and how a covenant works and doesn't work. We've gone through some of the doesn't work, mostly on my part, but we're, we've learned a lot of not, what not to do's. That's why we teach a great marriage seminar is because we've learned, here, I'm just going to teach you everything you shouldn't do. That's my specialty actually in things you shouldn't do. But what we're able to do, and what's, what Paul is talking about here, is that as we look at a natural relationship, a covenant relationship that works in a very particular way and doesn't work in very particular ways also, I'm able to use this relationship to understand this relationship. What's that saying? That's telling us that, that God is showing that his relationship with us isn't God and creation. His relationship with us is as a relationship of a husband and a wife. That is a covenant relationship. So then what we're able to do is we're able to look at my natural relationships in order to work on my heavenly relationship. I can understand by being a husband what it can feel like for God who is... Uh, it's weird in our culture because we have to be careful to put little taglines under the video. God is my husband, right? And I can understand God's relationship to me because I can, in a little bit of a way, understand my relationship with Tina, how I feel about that relationship. Does that make some sense? The important part about it is that he's not talking, that this human relationship is the metaphor, so we have to go back to this scripture and be able to look at this scripture and be able to see how is my relationship, how do I troubleshoot my relationship with God? Am I actually in a covenant relationship or not? Right, because in our culture, a lot of stuff that should be in marriage relationships is in non-married relationships. And so because of that, we can get very confused and we can often say it doesn't work because I tried it, well, I didn't try it, I tried it out, and it didn't work. Well, yeah, but you can't try it out. 
This is a different, it's a different kind of relationship that only works when you are 100% committed to it and 100% committed forever. And so uh, trying it out doesn't work. And we often see that happen where, you know, lots of our culture is all full, you know, have a lot of broken marriages and all of these type of things that operate in our culture, which would make it seem like it doesn't work. But that's not actually the case. It's because we're not understanding as a culture what it actually means to be in a covenant, which we're going to try and get to so that it's not only going to help you in your relationship with God, but you can also, if you're here and you're, and you're willing to listen, it can help you with your marriage relationship with your spouse. And so take a look there at verse um, 27, because this is one of the things we're going to have to kind of deal with when it comes to understanding the, the, how open our ears need to be to the concept of covenant. In verse 27 says, or let's go to 26, uh, 25, let's just go there. Just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of, the water, of water by the word, 27, that he might present her to himself a glorious church. And so, you have to see the chronology here. Jesus died in order to win the bride, but then as he's meeting the bride, he knows the bride isn't ready to be a bride yet because he's coming in with what? The cleansing, the sanctifying, the washing of the water of the word. Those are pictures that refer to a woman in preparation to get married. And so in that culture, as you may know, again, kind of very different than our culture today, uh, bathing was not something you did three or four times a day like we do in our culture. Um, I, was once, I was once drawn attention to the fact that King, King James, the guy who translated the Bible for us into English, he had a thousand-room castle. Uh, there was no bathroom in the thousand-room castle. There was no shower, no bathtub, in the entire facility. Because people did not do that back then. If you might have seen these funny movies where they used talcum powder. Do you remember? Talcum powder was what you did to take care of the body odor because you didn't bathe. Bathing actually was not something that's as, certainly nowhere near as common as what we do here in our culture. And so because of that, <coughs> a woman who was preparing to be wed, one of the things that they did was they would bathe and, and actually bathe regularly, like for a week they would bathe half of a day, every day. These type of things was just like a way of preparing yourself because people just, you know, you can, if you think in pictures, so you can, you know, our, the world back then was people worked, right? And it was dusty and dirty and all of these type of things and you hadn't bathed probably many people, they, if you go to third world nations, you know there's many people on the earth today that have not bathed ever other than being out in the rain or being in a river or something like that. They've never sat in a bathtub or used a shower ever in their entire life. We think that's totally weird, but that's the way the world was. No indoor plumbing means tough to take a shower, right? Yes. Anyways, what I'm drawing your attention to here is this particular terminology, the washing of the water of the word, is referring to the preparation of a, of a, 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 to be, a soon-to-be bride as she is preparing for her husband. And so we can see in that the important part about it that I wanna draw your attention to, I got a sidetrack there, 
is that he's saying, I'm here, Jesus went to the cross in order to prepare his bride, to, go, to take her from spotted and wrinkled to not spotted and not wrinkled. Does that make some sense? Because a lot of us think that when we met Jesus, we entered into a covenant at that moment. And that's completely not what the scripture talks to us about. We're gonna talk a little bit about that because of our, you get hamburger and fries and soda pop through the window and off you go kind of a culture. We want everything to be wrapped up all in one moment. You just get up to the altar, pray this prayer real quick. So you're going to heaven, you're bride of Christ, you're fully done, you're righteous, everything's done, zippity doo da. don't ever have to come back to church again. You are done. Sign right here. That's what we like. And we went through 100 years. Many of us know that we went through 100 years where the second 100 years, Jesus was coming back for sure before the end of the day tomorrow. So we were kind of interested in let's zippity doodah this and preach it good. And it's so much, so much more fun if I can tell you all you got to do is kneel down one time and you're set for all eternity. That just preaches well. Just like the, you know, the commercial at two o'clock in the morning, three easy payments, and you can have literally the whole wide world. That's, we like that. And that works well with us. The problem is it's, a big, it's got us very confused. Because the, the difficulty is, like in our culture, so many people think they're married, but they're not getting any of the benefits of being married. And that doesn't mean th that the benefits aren't there. It means that because we don't have any understanding of what it means to be in a covenant, we're not doing the right things, which are because we haven't become the right person. Because you can do covenant things, but they won't work. You have to become a covenant person. When you become a covenant person, you automatically do covenant things, and those covenant things that you do are life-giving and synergistic. And so, then that's the plan for God. He, does, he has always been interested in a synergistic relationship with a human being. And that being that as we come and the two become one flesh, which is referred to here, God and man become one flesh, that synergistic relationship is supposed to become uh, this amazing person, visible per one person, but it's actually two people, supposed to become this amazing person filled and overflowing with the blessing of Abraham. The problem being is similar to a human marriage. Because we don't understand these concepts, we end up breaking them almost immediately. And, and in most cases that I'm familiar with anyways, we enter into covenant or think we do when we're not ready to be in a covenant. Not to say that you can't be ready, but you can see from this scripture that meeting Jesus is, as, is akin to marrying Jesus as finding somebody in a bar and heading to the local Elvis Presley in order to become a husband and wife. Now, you know that if your child came to you and said they were going to do that, you'd go, yeah, I'm not sure that's a good idea. Uh, that's kind of how we've done things in the church. We've sort of said, you know, come into the church. This is your first time here. Pray the prayer real quick so you're done. Everything's zippity-doo. You know. That really hasn't helped us. Particularly when we discover what it means to be in a covenant with God and we realize, yeah, but see, I'm not, see, I'm not looking for any of that. So you want, you want me to serve God? Yeah, no, see, I'm looking for God to serve me. I'm not looking for to serve God. 
And so then people end up understanding it upside down and not getting the benefits and really being in a place where they'd say, if that was the deal in the beginning, I wouldn't have taken it. A lot of people, I think, are like that. That's why they kind of come to church for a while and then they don't come, right? It's kind of like looking after your spouse for a while, you know, till the honeymoon's over and then it's like, nah. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's strange two years later, they're, they're not doing well. You know, I, I, I can't understand it. They, they're, they got married and everything, and they're not doing well. So, But anyways, here's a great mystery in verse 32 there. It says, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Issue here now, Paul is talking to us about the covenant that exists before Almighty God. So go to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. And again, we're going to just roll out here how the New Testament is very much focused on the concept of covenant. Interestingly, if you take a look at what we consider the Christian world today, the Christian world, which would be, you know, even post-Christian, pre-Christian, whatever we want to talk about, how it, we are all in this weird season of the evolution of Christianity, uh, we know that we're really talking about maybe Western Europe and... North and South America, for the most part, as being Christian nations. And then we'd say then there's the Muslim, in the Muslim nations in the Middle East, and then there's the Buddhist nations that are the East. So just quickly do it like that. I know there's Australia and different places, whatever. But most of the Christian places don't operate covenant societies. They operate based on the rule, what we refer to as the rule of law. That being that we have determined, like in Canada, the United States, that we live according to a constitution, which is a document that lays out rights and privileges uh, and all of these type of things. And then we live by civil laws, which are an extension of that, and on and on it goes, so that we have all of these rules and regulations and laws and these type of things. And so if John and I are having trouble, if you know, I went over and painted John's house, but then John didn't pay me, I don't have to fight John. I just take him to court. I get a lawyer, he gets a lawyer, and we go at it, and the, whatever zippity do, and then the judge figures it all out. So I don't need to have a covenant. I, need to, I, don't, even to know, I don't even need to know John. I don't know if he knows if he's going to pay his bills, or if, he's, if I'm going to paint right, or I'm going to maybe drive my car through his garage, whatever. I don't care. It doesn't matter. We figure it out in a different way in our culture. The problem being, it has made us, um, do you know the term quid pro quo? Do you, do you recognize that term? Quid pro quo is Latin for I do this, you do that. And so I paint John's house, John pays me. So quid pro quo, this for that. And so that's how we live. We don't live based on covenant. And so because of that, when we are now trying to understand covenant in Christian nations, uh, we don't get it. But it's clear from scripture that as a Christian, the one thing that we should for sure understand is what does it mean to be in a covenant? Because my relationship with God is based on a covenant. Instead, we have more of a quid pro quo understanding of the scriptures, which is I do this, you do that. So I tithe, you bless me. I come to church, you bless me. You know, I'm a good guy, you bless me. I help this little old lady across the street, so you bless me. And so I'm doing good, getting good, and I have this relationship with God, and I learn all of doing the right things. And then I wonder why aren't doing the right things producing, doing, getting the right results? Instead, we have to understand that 
doing the right things is not covenant. It's not covenant. And you'll find out when we get to the end of this how this has completely messed us, flipped us completely on our head with understanding what it means to be in a covenant. And then the automatic result of what it means to be in the covenant means it opens up the whole gamut of the blessing of Abraham pouring into my life. Are you interested in discovering some of what this actually means? Considering that we would be in a really bad place as, nor, as Christians around the world because the central theme of the New Testament is now something that most of us, if we wrote a test on it, would fail. The, I printed this off. This is the, if you want to listen to a song on iTunes, you have to sign this document, or sign, digitally sign, this does nine pages long of all of the rules and all of the agreement that you make with iTunes simply because you want to play a song through their system. This is our world now. It looks like this. It's so complicated. Most of you are, it's, it, this is so complicated, I bet you I could line up a million people and ask and find out if anybody's read this agreement and everybody will say no. It's just, that's our world. Nobody understands all of this, like the Bible. Like I, I should have my paper one here, I don't. But it, that's a big book. There's a lot of rules in there. And so you see, when it comes to obeying all of the rules from that perspective, that's what we've, why we've crashed and burned when it comes to getting the blessing of Abraham operating in our lives because we just can't possibly do it all right. And then God says, when you look at a woman lustfully, you've already committed adultery. And it's like, oh, so if I even think about not doing it right, I blew it. On and on and on it goes where we are stuck in the mud because I think my relationship with God is a quid pro quo, quid pro quo relationship. I do this, you do that, I do this, you do that. Not only that, but you don't have to be a Christian very long before you do something and don't get the result that you thought you were going to get. When I sowed and didn't reap, I wasn't really sowing. If you wonder whether you're reaping or not, you're not sowing right. Because sowing doesn't really look for the harvest. It doesn't judge the harvest. And so if you're looking for the harvest, then your motive for sowing, I would suspect, is suspect. Does that make some sense? I'm sowing because I'm a generous person. I have become a generous person, and so when I see needs around me, I am desiring to be generous to that need. Yes, of course, there's always more in my pocket to be generous with, but I'm not worried about that part. Now, if you are, that's okay. If you find yourself very harvest, and, I'm not, and, and don't misunderstand what I'm saying, your expectancy obviously should be to get a harvest. But if you come back to me and say, well, it's not working because I gave somebody $10 this morning and so far, you know, it's almost bedtime and I haven't got the 100 bucks back, I'm gonna say that your motive is wrong. Now, not, and it's okay that it's wrong, but that's where the problem comes in, yeah. Right? And you'll discover that as we go down further of this, you know, picking apart what it means to be in a covenant and what is a mindset of a person that is, in, that is a covenant-minded person. Okay, so let's read. In, in, did you go to 2 Corinthians chapter 11? Did I give you that one? Verse 2 there. 
For I am jealous for you, as Paul speaking, I am je- well, God speaking through Paul, Paul speaking, God speaking, you understand what it is? I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy, for I have betrothed you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin unto Christ. But I fear lest somehow, as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. For if he who comes preaches another Jesus whom we have not preached, or if you receive a different spirit from which you have not received, or a different gospel which you have not accepted, you may well put up with it. If you don't understand the simple message of Jesus, there's a good possibility that you're going to open yourself up to something that is quite different. Now, can I tell you this? Since then, we go from a, a... covenant-minded gospel to a, a, a doctrinal-based church system where you do the right thing and you act a certain way and this is right and this is wrong and you need to do this and you need to not do that. And we quickly switched over to a system that was based on a quid pro quo. If I do good, I get good. If I do bad, I get bad. And the church moved over to that system. <clears throat> which required then every Christian to know what the Bible says from Genesis to Maps. Because you could be doing it wrong. And if you're doing it wrong, you're gonna get wrong, so you don't wanna do it wrong. So you need to learn and do perfectly everything in the Bible now, which has put the church in bondage. And not help, although we're still trying, there's still the motive, I'm not saying don't be good, I'm not saying that you can act any way you want and everything is going to turn out fine. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying you need, to, you need to become a covenant person. When you become a covenant person, you act like a covenant person. As you act like a covenant person, you get this amazing flow of all the blessing of Abraham in your life. Covenant is a specific thing. That's what I'm going to help you with. It's not just nothing. It's not just act any way you want. Notice that, that bride, in that, in talking about there, that I may present you a chaste virgin to Christ. I may present you. Paul talking to the Corinthian church. Now, like it or not, with the Corinthian church was very much like our church system today. Very Holy Ghost, not real big on doing the right thing. And so uh, he's saying to them, Paul speaking to people who go to church in Corinth. He's saying, I need to, I'm very jealous for you. I need to make sure that you don't get on the right, to get on the wrong path because I'm trying to present you as a chaste virgin to your husband. Again, he's referring to future tense. He's working on something with the people in the church to present them. Does that make some sense? Because what I'm trying to focus you on here is when these people came to church, good thing they came to church, but now that they came to church, they're in a process. Right. They're going through steps to, be, to go from where they were to where they need to be in order to be a chaste bride, a chaste virgin ready to be married. Okay, so again, we're dealing with a process. Paul is jealous to protect them as he prepares them. Sanctify and cleanse through the washing of the word. Corruption comes in the form then, because he says there, uh, that you may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. So 
we can kind of say it like this, that the corruption that is coming is anything anti-simplicity. Anything that makes this whole thing complicated is not what this is. Let me put it like that. I'm trying not to blow my notes here and you know, let the thunder roar. But understanding that covenant is super simple. Remember when, when, the, when, the, when the lawyer came up to Jesus and said, which is the greatest of the, of the commandments? And so Jesus said, well, it's not complicated. Do the, do the 10 commandments, that made it 10. And he says, yeah, I do those. And he says, okay, well, here's the, here's the one. And what's the one? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, love your neighbor yourself. There you go, therein. I love this part. Therein. Love your neighbor, love God, love your neighbor. Therein are all the law and the prophets fulfilled. If you can do this, it's simple, right? You can take a whole, you know, an inch and a half of your Bible and you can boil it down to love God with all your heart, love your neighbor as yourself. See that? It's made it so simple. And now when we're looking for the blessing of Abraham, I'm gonna give you a chart with 75 different things you have to do before the morning and do them well in order for you to even get a dint of the blessing. No, it's not gonna go like that. It's too complicated. Christ serving him, having a life-giving relationship with him is simply this, operate as a covenant person. Become a covenant person. When you actually become a covenant person, and this is going to be where the litmus test for all this is, you don't have to wonder whether you are or you aren't. A little bit of Selah here. The blessing of Abraham is the automatic byproduct of a covenant. And so because of that, if you are looking at your life and you say, you know what, there's a couple of those items on that blessing of Abraham list that I'm a little not sure on. That's just because you're not operating in the covenant yet. When the covenant door opens, it opens. And you start to see amazing things happening in your life simply because you've, you've started the journey of actually becoming a covenant person. Most of the North American expression of what Christianity is because it's not covenant, it doesn't work. Even when you see people who apparently have a little bit of the blessing of Abraham operating in their lives, right? They got health and strength and all those kind of things. Yeah, but they're 22. The problem is, is how do you get it operating in your life until you're 120? Do you understand? Yes, I work three jobs and I don't know my children's first name, but I've got money in my pocket. Well, yeah, that, it, you can make it work like that, but how many of you know how long that lasts? And you start having it so that all of this actual human effort has been grinding out an appearance of the blessing of Abraham. But the blessing, is not, the blessing of Abraham is not like that. We started the year with that. It overtakes you. It overcomes you. That you, you don't fight your enemies. They come at you one way, flee from you seven ways. Where's the battle? Do you understand? And so, although you can certainly do the fight and say we've won it that way, but <clears throat> an honest person would say, yeah, I, I don't think it's working like automatically like it's supposed to. 
I can't really give you, I mean, it's great that we have little testimonies and we have miracles are happening and they're amazing. They keep us in the game. But I can tell you something, we're going into a season where the, 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 mm, the spectacular nature of the miracles is gonna go through the roof. It's not gonna go through the roof because we try so hard and we've become these awesome people. People who have, <clears throat> people who have a great marriage, because I work with a lot of people that, that that's often the question. Uh, people who have great marriages are simply covenant people. Even if they're married to the worst person on the planet, like Tina is. When you're a covenant person, it, you have a great, it's great. Can I move on? Okay. Um, oh, it's remarkably simple. You know, we have this, uh, Pastor Alex and I were talking about this again the other day, that people start to have faith in their faith. They have hope in their hope. And so they do all of the rules, right? They know all of the ways to give and they know all the confessions and they're doing all the do's and they're waking up early and they're praying and they're reading their Bible and doing stuff, but then they come and say, they're not working. And I said, wait a minute, what's your faith in? Well, my faith is in my process. Uh, no, 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 no. Work. See, can I tell you something? <clears throat> That's new age. The new age world is all about the universe that is somehow magically programmed to respond to faith and hope. And the more positive thinking in I ha that I have, the more vision I have, the more intentionality, the more of the secret is operating, the more of attraction that I got going on, all of these things that they've thought they figured out, that's, that's the system. That's not the person. You know, the problem is, it, is, it all works good as long as everything is kind of going on an upward curve. Can I tell you something? When the system is hard to, it's hard to maintain the system and hope and faith in the system when it's all coming apart like a $3 watch. Now, wait a minute, uh, the system don't look like it's working now. Now I need to know there's somebody behind the system. Not only is there somebody, but that person better have their game together way better than I got my game together, and I sure hope it ain't you. You see the problem? But the new age thing, because we have had 100 years of prosperity, we've just seen that it works well if we just have the faith and the, and the vision and the, the, the secret and the intentionality and the attraction, they are working. It does work. The problem is, is it's not what the kingdom is about. The system, yes, was designed in. God designed creation to function that way, but a human being needs God, a person behind the promise. It just doesn't need to know that electricity is there because electricity goes both ways. Fear and faith go both ways. Dr uh, dread and hope go both ways. And that's where the problem comes in, and so much of that has come into the, into the kingdom where we've just got faith in our faith and hope in our hope, rather than saying, no, 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 I've become, uh, I've become a covenant partner with the God of this universe, and because of that, I believe in him, because I believe the system works. Does that make some sense? It'll, 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 it'll become clearer. <coughs> <clears throat> uh, 
Um, it's kind of like if you remember the, the movie The Matrix? Yeah. It's kind of like that. Like the Matrix is this AI system that is running the whole thing, like this, the higher power or the super universe or whatever they call the guy. And so that's not the way this system is. And we can become deceived if we only see one layer down when faith, hope, and love run the world. We need to realize, yeah, faith, hope, and love run the world because God is faith, hope, and love. Right. Does that make some sense? Right. <clears throat> okay. And also in the, what he's saying there then, uh, this simplicity issue that, you, that your mind may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. So we know it's the mind where the problems are being created. Where we go into this complexity thing is in our mind. Just like in the, ter this, the terms of this agreement with uh, whoever iTunes is, this is very complex. And if you, wanna, if you don't wanna just listen to a song on iTunes and you wanna publish a song on iTunes, the sucker is as, as tall as you. The rules and regulations and all of the complexity of it. That's what, the, that's what the system, this quid pro, pro quo system is trying to do to our minds is make it so complicated. And, and also covenant, <clears throat> I should say this, covenant is not actions. Covenant is in the mind and it produces actions. But how many of you know I can be madder than a hornet at Tina and still kiss her? Now, she'll know, you know, get away from me, Bob, or whatever your name is, because she knows the kiss is not authentic. How many of you know that? So it's not the action. It's the heart, the mind, that is behind the action that counts for everything. Is that true? Okay. And the third thing is, so we've, we know that we are we're in a system where we have to accept the fact that the early stage of Christianity is a stage of preparation, we are being prepared to be a bride. The second part is to know that there is a system, a process where we are, that Paul was saying here, I wanna present you as a chaste virgin. I want you to go from this person, dirty and dusty, over to this person who is washed and wrinkle-free and spot-free, ready. So there's a process that he's referring to there. And the third thing that I wanna draw your attention to is that covenant has a purpose. Again, in our culture, this has become so, such a gray zone that we have lost it. So go over with, to me with to Romans chapter 7, verse 4, it says there, therefore, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ, that you may be married to another, to him who was raised from the dead, that we should bear fruit unto God. Now, again, we can understand the metaphor, although we have, to be in, we have to sort of think of a very, very, you know, pure time in human history when people had babies only inside of the context of a married relationship. And so we know that, the, 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 you know, you can do pretty much everything that you can do when you're married, before you're married, except one particular thing. Am I being clear on a G-rated program here? That thing that you get to do after you're married is the thing, you know, I know this is grade eight for you here, but is the thing that makes babies, right? What does that signify? That signifies that the covenant relationship's purpose is to make babies. 
It's specifically designed to be something that produces fruit. And so we recognize, again, that as we are in our relationship with God, we've lost a lot of this in the New Testament because people would say, what's my purpose? What's Christianity about? Well, Christianity is about me getting to go to heaven when I die because I sure as heck don't want to go to H-E double toothpicks. I don't want to go there. And so thank goodness Jesus died on the cross so that I wouldn't have to go to hell. That's the purpose of Christianity. And so we've lost that. Oh, the purpose of Christianity, which is, and I'm, not, I'm not saying you don't get to go to heaven. Yes, you do. But that's not the purpose. What's the purpose? The purpose is to destroy the works of the devil. Yes, that's the purpose, but that's not the purpose. The purpose is to bear fruit for God here on earth. That's the purpose. So again, I can look at my own life and say, how strongly is the covenant operational in my life? Am I bearing fruit? And now that we can, now, you know, if you go, if you, you know, you did my Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, read only the red for a couple of times through, you already got all of this bearing fruit is a very significant metaphoric story in the gospels. We have the vineyards and the fig tree and the cursing the fig tree because it's not bearing fruit and the giving, the, the certain man gives away his land and travels to a far country, but he gives the property over to a bunch of land, uh, land keepers and, because he wants to get some fruit from his land. And then we go to John chapter 15. You know, let's even go there a little bit because it's important for us on our journey. Did I write it down? I didn't, so we won't. The, when we go to John 15, it's talking about that if you don't bear fruit, then you're, the, you get cut off. But if you do bear fruit, what does he do? He prunes you in order to get even better fruit. So you can see that this concept of fruit bearing is a lot more important to God than the rapture. So, oh, dear God, don't say that. See, we've maximized these things and minimized these things. The covenant is not about making sure you get a pre-trib rapture. That's not the purpose. I do hope you get one if you need one, but that's not the purpose. Destroying the works of the devil isn't the purpose. It's how you get to the purpose. Because to bear fruit, you got to have some dealing with the devil's things going on. You have to understand that stuff. But we've made all of these things the purpose instead of it just being simple. Tina and I got married so that we could have kids. And now they got married so that they could have kids. And on and on and on the system goes. In God's eyes, they are, we are here because we have to bear fruit. The fruit of your life is the purpose in God of the reason you exist and multiplying that purpose to fill the whole world. We can see again, how far am I getting with the purpose that my life has in God? If I'm getting far and I'm accelerating and the trajectory is going higher and higher, then there's a good chance that you have a good understanding of the covenant. If that's not happening and everything is in park or going backwards, then you should come on Sunday. Um, 
so, it, uh, and we know from Mark chapter four, right? Pastor Alex was here the other day stealing my stuff as I, you know, at least he, at least he gave me credit, which is, you know, it's fair. Um, I stole it from Jesus too, by the way, so I don't feel bad. <laughs> See, it's wh- where, what, bear, what part bears fruit? Do you remember? You need your notes? What, what soil bears fruit? The good soil, right? It, and what was he talking to us about last week? Or he says, you've got to get the soil to the place where it's good soil. Right. You've got to become a chaste virgin. You've got to be washed by the water of the word. You've got, all of these things are referring to the same process where we've going from fruitlessness, barrenness, over to fruitfulness. As we go through and cleanse the, the, the soil, as he was saying last week, in order to get it to be this great fruit-bearing soil. Then we gotta submit to the vine dresser who prunes us every time we get a little bit of fruit going on in our life, we get pruned again because he wants more fruit, he wants better fruit. Because the whole thing is about bearing fruit. And so then we understand, what's my relationship with with God here on earth? My relationship with God here on earth is, how do I bear more fruit? And how do I accept all the things that need to be accepted about life here on earth because I have already pre-decided I am going to bear fruit. If you take a look again in John chapter 15, if there's no fruit now, what happens to the vine who has no, no fruit? Right, it gets cut. But... Remember with the, with the, in, in Luke chapter 13, with the, the tree that didn't bear fruit, and then the, the, whatever, the vineyard guy, what do you call those guys, the farmer, let's go with that. He says, wait, because the, the father was going to cut the tree down. But then the farmer says, well, hang on a second, can we give it one more year? And I'll tend it, and I'll fertilize it, and I'll do everything I can possibly do. If we come back next year, and there's still no fruit... We'll cut it down then. What's that talking to us about? Obviously, we're all coming into Christianity bearing no fruit. Right? When we first meet God, we're not, bear- we're not fruit-bearing trees. But it's referring to the fact that there does get to be a point where it's like, if you're insisting on not bearing fruit, if you're insisting on not becoming a covenant person, you're... you're I didn't say this. You're wasting your time here. You need to become a covenant person because you're going to be, your, your journey from here in heaven is all about how far did you get in your journey here. In order to get anywhere in your journey here, you have to bear fruit. And the only way you bear fruit is to become a covenant person. Does that make some sense? And I'm not trying to say people, you know, that I'm not, I'm not trying to make this a downer message. It's not supposed to be a downer message because you're not supposed to get married until you're ready to get married. Right. Do you understand? And, but now we're kind of, we got the cart before the horse a little bit. And so we, we need to be backing up and going, you know, how am, where am I, yeah. honestly, in this journey? And did I do what needed to be done in order to be get myself into the right place? Right. So number one, I'll close with this. I love the way Alex says that. He says he's closing with this halfway through his teaching. Because uh, yes. <laughs> I'm thinking, I'm, I'm, I'm heading upstairs uh, to get pizza when he says I'm ready to close. And it's like, oh man, I'm ready to close, ready to close. Ready. So I'm going to take that. I'm ready to close. 
And I just have three small points for you. If we want to fix our, if we want to fix our marriage, because you can take a look at this in a marriage context, one, there must be a desire to fix it. You know, if you're coming to my Pastor Ian's class on having a good marriage, and you're coming with your wife and your girlfriend, can I tell you? I'm going to tell you, to, I'm going to stop you at the door, and I'm going to say, you know, one of them got to go. Don't come here with both of those. How many of you say, yep, that's it? Yeah. We were talking about that last time, when it comes to tithing. Don't, you know, and I'm, you know, I guess take it or leave it, I suppose. I'm here bearing good news today. You ain't ready to fix it if you're not tithing. Don't think it's easy for anybody to start tithing or stay tithing, right? There's always something that will come and try to get you to go back over to the other side because the devil is very interested in you betraying your covenant. So we come to church with our, with, with our covenant God and our mistress mammon, and we think that's okay. You, you, you can't do that. Now, I'm fine if you want to keep coming to church. I'm good with that. I'm telling you, if you want this, if you want to see what the blessing of Abraham looks like, I'm not telling you to tithe. Because I don't think tithing because you should is the way to do it. Now, you should start there because that's how you learn stuff. But you should be tithing because you are celebrating your covenant relationship. And that I'm telling you every Sunday morning, devil, you can take that mammon and shove it because I am not going back to that bondage ever again. And this is the way I'm proving to you every Sunday. I don't care how big the check gets. It's easy to tithe 10 bucks, not so easy with 100 bucks. I bet you it's tough with 100 grand. I bet you it's harder with a million. I mean, it means you're making some large dough, but it's still tough to cut the check. Can I tell you something? Don't be a kid. Don't get married if you're not ready for you know, what it means to be married. And that means there's stuff that you're, you, have a, you have part of the bargain. And so are you ready to fix it? So you have to be ready. You cannot fix your marriage. I'm not going to help anybody fix their marriage if only one of them wants to fix it. I say, zippity-doo, come back when you're both ready because I cannot help you. God cannot even help you if you're not willing to be helped. Do you understand? You can, if you're not willing to listen, he's not going to talk. Okay, and we know this, when Jesus was talking to the disciples in Mark chapter 4, he said, to them that are without. I'm not going to give this to those people who are without. They're just here for lunch. I'm going to give this to the people who are the inside. If they're ready for what God wants to give them, but you have to be that person. You have to be the person who is ready to step into a marriage. You should try to do some of my marriage classes. I, I tell them at the beginning of my marriage class, my job is to see if I can get you not married. I'm going to do everything I can to see if I can scare you away. Because if you think I'm tough, you should try being married. Yeah. <laughs> All right. You must be willing to forget the apparent failures of the past. <clears throat> These were never God's failings. Rather, they were demands. Listen to me. They were demands we put on a level of relationship we did not yet have. You know, if you tried to jump into bed with some girl that you met yesterday and she said no, I know you're shocked because you are so good looking. But can I tell you something? You didn't have cash in the bank, right? What is it? Right? You want to put a ring on it and you can have it. 
Because there's a, there's a level of relationship that we don't have. And so we've been operating like that, you know, gimme, gimme, gimme. I want, the open, I want the open bank account. I want you to protect me. I want you to do all of these things for me. And God's going, I'm sorry, what was your first name again? Now, I know that he knows you. But he's not in covenant with you. I'm not saying he's not. But he, when you are in covenant, Tina comes, takes money all the time. I mean, she does ask, which is kind of her. She doesn't have to. Everything I have is hers, right? And so you don't even have to ask. At this level, when you come into this place, you don't even have to ask. Again, you, you, how many of you got scriptures going off in your head? He already knows what you need before you even ask for it. And so, yes, she asks, but it's only to be polite. <laughs> Hello? Okay, so we are putting demands because people told us that when you prayed a little prayer and knelt down one day, you, were, had, you had all of heaven available to you. That's not the case. I'm sorry, it's not the case. There is a, and what we do is we put a demand on this relationship as if we were a married couple, but we're not a married couple. And then we're mad at God because he didn't give us what you can only get when you're inside of a marriage. Do you see that? And then we're all saying, well, God is not faithful. He's not doing what he said he was going to do. He's not, he, you can never, <laughs> ever say God is not faithful. If you say God's not faithful, you don't have to tell me the rest of the story. You're already a liar. It is impossible for God to be unfaithful. Impossible. So if you think God's being unfaithful, you just don't know something. Because it is literally impossible for God not to be faithful. Amen. Can I tell you, you, do you know when, you became a, when ca God came into covenant with you? Do you know? I know all you theologians are just wrestling right now. <laughs> See, when Jesus went to the cross. That was 2,000 years ago. Matter of fact, God said it wasn't even 2,000 years ago. It was from before the foundations of the world. God's been in covenant with you before he created Adam. <coughs> the question is not when did God enter covenant with you? When did you enter covenant with him? He said, beloved, I'm with you always and all that I have is yours. When did you say that? Right? When I'm marrying two people, it's not just, you know, till death do us part, you get one person to say that. I'll be faithful to you forever. Whatever I have is yours and whatever, you know, all the beautiful little poems that we write to one another. I just get one of them to say it. If one of them says it and the other one doesn't say it, Zippity-doo, you ain't married, right? You got to both say it. That's our problem. And then we try to have this open wallet relationship with God when it's like, yeah, uh-uh-uh, you don't get the key to the safe yet. Okay. <laughs> Here I put that, just met in a bar and demanding the advantages of a marriage. This is G-rated. Those are intimacy protection and provision, right? I want to be intimate with you. I want to be close. I want to have this great companionship relationship. I want to come move into your house so that you can protect me and I want the, I want the, the visa card, right? That's after we just met 20 minutes ago in the bar. How many of you would give all of that to somebody you just met 20 minutes ago in a bar? Why do you think God would? Especially if you have your girlfriend on your other arm. Hello. Only... Only the present, you have to own the present state of affairs. 
if you're not ready to own it right now, then you're not ready to even start the discussion. If you still need it to be God's fault, then you're not ready. Can I tell you something? This is gonna shock you. If you're ready to blame your spouse for anything, you will eventually blame that person for everything. All you have to do is start the ball rolling. You know, if Tina didn't quite cook the eggs right by lunch, she didn't make the sandwich right, she didn't clean the carpet right, she didn't treat me right, she didn't comb her hair right, she didn't put your bed in. Slowly but surely, if I let one thing in, soon I'll blame her for everything. And it could just be, I, I blame her because something happened 30 years ago. It's all your fault because of this thing that happened 30 years ago. If you blame God for anything, you're eventually going to blame him for everything. Most Christians blame God for everything. Tweetable right there. Desire for the relationship. Okay, listen now. This is all under you must be willing to forget the apparent failures of the past. Desire for the relationship with God must outweigh the anger, the frustration, the betrayal, the abandonment, the pain, the torment, the abuse, etc., etc., etc. You know, if you have, if you were counseling people that were in the marriage, and let's say one of the married people had been unfaithful to the other, now you have to. Ask, are you willing to let that go? Because if you cannot let that go, I cannot fix this. Well, they did. Yep, I understand. And it really, yes, I know it hurt. Yes, that's, yes, it's betray- yes, it is, for sure. But you gotta let it go. Takes two to tango. Just by the fact that you're here, so, let, so be encouraged by this. Just by the fact that you are here, after living in the Christianity where we had all the promises, I think, Tim, I think, was saying this in the, in the LCSM, The frustration gap has been there and it's been widening. The more you learn about the way it should be and the more you have the power to analyze the way it is, the more you know, the wider the frustration gap gets. But you're still here. So that's a really good sign. But you must specifically decide to let it go. If you've had a long history with God, I even Pastor Alex, I think, said this last week, whatever is the, in the you got to let it go. Anywhere you think God has been unfaithful to you is simply you didn't understand the covenant. If you would have understood the covenant, you'd have done it right. We'd have become the right people in the beginning. We wouldn't graduate you to, to algebra class unless we got you to understand one plus one. Because covenant's simple. We have to start there. We have to decide as we even begin to look at the next hundred or thousand years of the kingdom to flip this thing on its head and give people an opportunity to decide, do I want to enter a covenant relationship with Almighty God? If you don't want that, that's cool. We have to stop promising them the the wedding bed until we tell them about the covenant. Because there's too many people who are now frustrated and had enough of all of this simply because nobody bothered to tell them the blessing of Abraham is the result 
of what it means to be in a covenant. Does that make some sense? Is it starting to make sense to everybody? And thirdly is this. Wow, is that daylight savings time? Is it, has that gone that far? <laughs> you must be willing to relearn the basic concepts of a covenant. You have to be willing to go back to the beginning again. It's really simple. It's just about becoming a covenant person. You can't do covenant. You can only be covenant. You can do all the right things, but for the wrong reason, it still won't help. As a matter of fact, <clears throat> doing all the, wrong, the right things for the wrong reason actually makes it worse. When Tina's mad at me, the very last thing I should do is try to kiss her. I need to be good for a while, right? I need to fix it. If I just rush in there to try and band-aid it over, you know, kiss the hand, buddy, you know, it's not gonna work. And you're gonna make me madder if you insist. Is that true? That's how it is with God. We get into this doing the right thing even though we know and God knows and we know God knows that we're doing it for the wrong motive but we keep doing it anyways. That we should just stop for a moment and say, God, I need to get the right heart in this. In everything that we do, whatever Christian principle you are following, before you do it, just think about, am I really doing this as a covenant person? And we'll discover what that is. It's going to be a great, great, great service on Sunday. But in order to prepare for that, we have to make the decision that says, one, I'm ready to fix this. If you look at your life as we can all, you know, look, you know, just a broad brush over our lives. And we'd say, you know, I'm just not sure that the blessing of Abraham is flowing like it's supposed to be flowing. Forget about it being God's problem, own it. Own it to the point that you say, I'm ready to fix this. I'm ready to find out what it means to be a covenant person and then become a covenant person. And it's not complicated at all. I just want you to put your hand over, let's not rush it. You know, many of us have been in this situation where we already thought we were. We already thought I was, I, I think I have already said, God, I think we sing the song almost every week, you know, I give everything to you. I think Mike even sung it tonight. I, Jesus, I give everything to you, but we didn't. Right. We didn't. Or we thought we did, and we, maybe we were very sincere, but we didn't. We held it all back. Why do we hold back? Fear, dread, yeah. selfishness. But that's Okay. We all start there. Nobody ever has come to God for the right motive. Ever. Everybody comes to God because of a fear, a dread, or a selfishness. And so don't worry about whether, you know, you're all that. It's not, it's not about that. It's about me deciding as I look at my life I'm ready to dedicate the next couple months of my life to focus on and become transformed in this area of covenant. And so if you're in that place, um, put your hand over your heart either way, even if you're not sincere, just so that nobody looks at you. And say this with me, say, Heavenly Father, 
I know the New Testament is all about a covenant that I'm being offered, a marriage agreement that I'm being offered from heaven. I know I haven't done everything right so far. I know that because there seems to be a little bit of errors in the blessing of Abraham getting into my life. I know the blessing is simply the outcropping of a healthy covenant. And so, Heavenly Father, I come here. I am ready to fix it. I am willing to fix it. I'm here renouncing any covenant, any agreement that I have with the spirit of mammon, that controlling spirit in this natural world that wants me to be dependent upon money rather than dependent upon God. I know that bondage is holding me away from my covenant with Almighty God. And I'm ready to make a decision. Never again will I be bound, will I be controlled by the spirit of mammon. And Heavenly Father, I'm ready to let go of all the offenses, all the betrayals, all the abandonment, all the pain, all the issues, all the torment, every time I thought you betrayed me, every time I thought you were not faithful to your side of the agreement. I know that's not possible. In fact, I'm ready to own this thing. I know the reason it's not flowing is because of me. Not that I'm a bad person. I just don't understand some things. But I tell you today, I'm ready to understand them. I'm ready to discover what it means to live in a covenant with Almighty God. And so Holy Spirit, I declare to you, I'm coming on Sunday. I'm ready for the last few months of this year to lay hold of the promise to activate the blessing of Abraham in and through my life. I'm ready to transform whatever it means in my heart to be ready and to enter a covenant with my heavenly Father. So Holy Spirit, guide me, lead me. I know this is the key. If I'm going to believe anything, I want to believe this. In Jesus' name, amen.